Good morning, Cornerstone. I'm glad you're tuning in this morning. If you're new, my name is Jamie, one of the pastors here at Cornerstone. It is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 4. We're going to finish the book of Colossians this morning. We work through books of the Bible here at Cornerstone a little bit at a time, and this is because we believe that the Bible is God's Word And as God's Word, we believe that it is profitable for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness, that every man or woman of God would be fully equipped for every good work. This is the closing paragraphs of Paul's letter to the Colossians, and it holds for us good spiritual food, good necessary spiritual food. Before I jump into the text this morning, I would like to pray with you all, and so if you would join with me, I'm going to be praying Psalm 119, verses 153 to 160. Will you pray with me? Lord, we come to you through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Savior. Will you look upon us? Will you hear our prayers this morning? Lord, we are in trouble. Will you please deliver us? We are the people of your word. We plead our cause to you. Redeem us, O Lord. For so often we have sold ourselves to sin. We've bought into the enemy's lies. Father, buy us back. Without you, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Speak to us your words of eternal life. Lord, the world doesn't know your salvation. They don't even know that they need saving. They don't read your word. So they don't know you, and they don't know themselves. But you, O Lord, are great in mercy. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on our world. Our sin has ruined us. Give us life in your word. We are surrounded by lies. They call us to follow ourselves and to turn away from you. Will you rescue us? Will you keep us from turning away? Lord, we hate our own faithlessness. We hate quitting you. We hate abandoning your commandments. Why do we do that? You are full of joy and happiness. Why is it so easy for us to turn from you? Give us a love for your commandments. Fill our hearts with a desire to please the Lord. Show us again your steadfast love for us. The sum of your word is truth. It all adds up to one thing, truth. Your word endures forever. Make us a forever people, uninterested in and undistracted by the temporal, by the flashy, by the gimmicky. Make us long for truth, forever truth the truth that we find in your word. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. The verse that I have just prayed, Psalm 119, verse 160, says, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. 
And that's a good reminder as we open up our Bibles for the last time in this series in Colossians chapter 4, beginning at verse 10, down to the end of the book. I'll read the passage and then we'll dive right in and unpack it one verse at a time. Colossians 4, beginning at verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. Enlarge your heart or keep it small. Christian, these are the options left before you today. Enlarge your heart or keep it small. The large heart is like the American West. It's wild. It's beautiful. There are big skies and big mountains. The summers are indescribably beautiful. And like the West, the winters are incredibly brutal. The large heart is filled with the things of God. It is marked by joy, sights of divine glory. It is a heart full of faces and names. It is a heart that has known the delights of being used by the Lord to the benefit of others. A large heart is also marked by sorrows, like the cold winters of the American West, because it feels so deeply, because it lets others in. A large heart is unprotected from disappointment and loss. The small heart is more like a desert island, which might be paradise for a day or two till you run out of food, till you realize there's no cover. Resources are scarce. A desert island is deadly and lonely. But the small heart is safer. There's less room for faces and names. Less people are let in. And so there's less chance of being let down. And because it is smaller, 
It's actually more crowded. There's less to see. There's less to enjoy. And though it's safer, it's actually ruled by fear. The small heart is dangerous because sin easily hides in the small heart and quickly spreads. These closing lines of the Apostle Paul's letter are greetings. And greetings in your Bible are no throwaway section. They teach us a great deal of the kind of church life that was envisioned and lived and promoted by the apostles. We read eight names in these closing lines. Some names we've heard before and some names are new to us. These are eight of around 100 names connected to the ministry of the Apostle Paul. So if anything, closing passages like this one reinforce for us the normalcy, the necessity of the community of faith that has been gifted to every follower of Jesus Christ. And they call out to our need to enlarge our hearts to others. Here's the main idea, as best as I can understand this morning. The Christian life is marked by highs and lows. So God uses the community of his church to enable his, his people to fulfill the ministry that he's given to them. The Christian life is marked by highs and lows. And so God gives us the community of faith through which he uses to enable us to fulfill his call on our life. We see this beginning in verse 10 to 14, where we have a look at gospel ministry friendships. This is friendship in gospel ministry. Just read it again, verse 10 to 14. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they've been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, greets you. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you. And for those in Laodicea and Herapolis, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. One thinks of that song, thank you for being a friend, travel down a road and back again, your heart is true, you're a pal and a confidant. It's an old good song about friendship that was made popular, of course, as the theme song of the Golden Girls. Well, it's a good song that Paul may have, well, sang over these men. These are Paul's friends. These are his, his Dorothy and Blanche and Rose, if you will. Aristarchus, whom Paul calls my fellow prisoner, is a bit like Tychicus, whom we saw last week. 
Aristarchus traveled with Paul in his missionary journeys. He was a native of Thessalonica. And the first time that we meet Aristarchus in the Bible, he's being dragged by a mob. He shared that in common with the Apostle Paul. They get dragged by mobs. Well, they've been telling people about Jesus in the city of Ephesus, and so many people were coming to faith in Jesus in Ephesus that they stopped going to the pagan temples. They stopped spending their money at the pagan temples, and so the pagan temples began to lose money, and so a mob formed, and they grabbed a hold of Aristarchus. He barely escaped with his life. The next time he appears in Scripture, he's going with Paul to Jerusalem. And and we talked about that journey of Paul's last week. He also accompanied Paul from Jerusalem when Paul gets arrested in Jerusalem and gets shipped off to Rome. And here we see him in Colossians chapter 4, and he is with Paul in prison. Church tradition holds that Aristarchus, like Paul, was murdered martyred in Rome by the emperor Nero. Another of Paul's friends that he mentions here is a man named Mark. We'll come back to Mark in a minute. Verse 11 mentions a man named Jesus, who goes by a different name, Justice, his rap name, Justice. Well, we know nothing of this man. This is the only place in Scripture that he is mentioned. The only thing we know is that his name was Jesus, Not that Jesus, of course, (laughs) different Jesus. The the name Jesus, Yeshua, was a common name in that day. And this fellow probably got tired of saying, hi, my name is Jesus. Not that Jesus, just call me Justice. But Justice is with Paul in Rome. These three men, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, Paul says they are the only three men of the circumcision who are with me. Of the circumcision, of course, means they were Jewish. In fact, it's interesting because in the six people that Paul mentions who are with him in Rome, three of them are Jewish and three of them are Gentile. An accident? I hardly think so. He mentions another friend, a man by the name of Epaphras. We've met Epaphras before, back in chapter 1. Epaphras is from Colossae. It's likely that Epaphras planted the church that's in Colossae. It's very likely that he is their pastor, and he's with Paul in Rome. Well, if he's a pastor of Colossae, then what is he doing all the way with Paul in Rome? Well, he's telling Paul about all of the trouble that's been going on back in Colossae, all the false teachers that they're having to engage with back in Colossae, all of the things that actually occasion the letter that Paul wrote. Epaphras is a good pastor. I want a pastor like Epaphras. Just consider how Paul describes him. He is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. He has worked hard for you. He's one of them. He's not above them. He's a member of the church just like everyone else. Paul calls him a servant. Paul says he always struggles in prayer on your behalf. That phrase literally means he fights for them in prayer. He agonizes over them in prayer. What is Epaphras' 
pastoral agony? Well, Paul tells us that his people would stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. This is what you want out of your pastors, Cornerstone. Not men whose best characteristic is that they're good at administration. It's fine, but there are other people who can do that. Not men whose best characteristic is leading teams or directing operations or creating programs. It's fine if they can do that. It's just others can do that too. You want men who will fight for you in prayer, who will plead with God that he would mature you, who would convince you of God's will through his word. You want men who work hard in prayer and men who work hard in the word. The phrase worked hard is translated in other places in the New Testament as pain. Epaphras worked hard, endured great pain for his church. What a blessing this man was to the Colossian church. He agonizes over them in prayer. He endures great pain in his work for them. But notice it's not just for them that he's working. He works it for other churches too. Paul says he worked hard for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Epaphras was a thoroughgoing church man. He wasn't interested in creating his own kingdom in Colossae. He gave himself to building the church of Jesus Christ throughout the region. The next friend mentioned is Luke and Demas. Demas will save for a little bit later. Luke is the beloved physician, Luke, the Luke of the gospel of Luke. Luke gave his mind and his talents to the ministry of the word, and God used him mightily. This is the man who wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke wrote more words in the New Testament than anyone else. 25% of the New Testament came from the pen of Luke. Luke often traveled with the apostle Paul. When you read the book of Acts, you'll often come across the word we. We got on this boat and went here. We were doing these things and these things. Luke is Paul's dear friend, probably also his doctor, since Paul was often in poor health. In the last letter of Paul's, we read, Luke alone is with me. Tells you the kind of friend Luke was to Paul. Friendship is vital in the Christian life. Now, I have to admit, brothers, our sisters are generally much better at this than we are. Friends are a gift of the Lord. You know, even the Lord Jesus had friends. He called Lazarus his friend. He called the disciples his friends. The enemies of Jesus said he was the friend of sinners. Jesus had friends. Who are your friends? Who are those people who call out, 
who text you, who just reach out to find out how you're doing, how you can be encouraged? Who are those men and women in your life that call you out when you're being an idiot? Gospel ministry is marked by deep friendships. Friendships that form around the gospel and gospel ministry. Now, of course, friendship can be formed around other things as well, other shared interests, but the sort of friends that we see here in the closing lines of this letter, these are ministry friendships. They transcend other interests. If you don't have a lot of friends, if you don't have any friends, can I just encourage you to begin praying for friends? Enlarge your heart. Pray for friends. Invest yourself in the lives of others. Do the work of ministry and be patient. The Lord will give you friends. You won't have to go out looking for them. You won't have to blame them for not being your friend. You won't have to send out greeting cards with a will you be my friend, circle yes or no kind of thing. Just do the ministry. Just serve the local church. Enlarge your heart. Pray. And God will be kind to answer that prayer and give you deep friendships. Gospel ministry is marked by deep friendships. It's also marked by grace and heartbreak. We see this in the two names that we've saved until now. Back up in verse 10, Paul mentions a man by the name of Mark. He says that he's the cousin of Barnabas. This Mark, in in verse 10, is known as John Mark throughout the Bible. John Mark was from Jerusalem. His mother, Mary, not that Mary, a different Mary, I know. Mary was a prominent member in the church in Jerusalem. The book of Acts tells us that part of the church in Jerusalem met in Mary's home. Early in Paul's ministry, he took John Mark with him to Antioch. And from Antioch, while he was serving the Lord in that church, the Holy Spirit set apart Paul and Barnabas, and the church in Antioch sent them out on their first missionary journey. The Bible says in Acts 13, they had John as their helper. That John is John Mark. Well, that early ministry journey got dicey not, after not a very long amount of time. and They had to travel through some rather difficult areas, some rather dangerous areas. The work got difficult, and when going got tough, John Mark got going back to Jerusalem. Acts chapter 13, verse 13, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Seems that John Mark got afraid And he deserted Paul and Barnabas, and they had to finish the mission without him. Some years later, 
Paul is preparing for another missionary journey. Barnabas suggests that they take his cousin John Mark with them again. Paul did not think this was wise. He had already abandoned us once. Why would we take him with us again? Barnabas insisted John Mark go with him, but Paul refused. Acts 15, 39 to 40 records, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed. More than a decade later, here in Colossians chapter 4, Paul sends greetings to the Colossian church from the same John Mark. He writes, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Now we see Paul commending John Mark to the Colossians telling them, don't hesitate welcoming him in. It's not the same John Mark that he was years ago. Well, what changed? Forgiveness, grace, maturity. Eleven or twelve years later, John Mark has been reconciled to the Apostle Paul. How that took place, we're not told. But I suspect it had something to do with the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. Peter writes his greetings. And he says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. It seems that somewhere along the way, The Apostle Peter got a hold of John Mark. He discipled him, and he matured him in the Lord. After all, the Apostle Peter knew a little about being a coward, about failing to keep your promises. And the Apostle Peter knew a little about grace and about reconciliation. There is a lot to learn. Those of us who have walked with Jesus for a while, who have some some decades following Jesus behind us, who, who is the young man, the young woman you're discipling? Who is your John Mark? I wonder what might happen if we begin to ask the Lord to send young men, young women into our lives and we begin to take them under our wings and we begin to disciple them like Peter did to Mark. May the Lord forgive us ever being dismissive towards screw-ups in the church for writing off people because they're weak sauce for moving on to bigger and better things. Lord, have mercy on us seasoned Christians. Those of you who do not have decades of following Jesus behind you, or perhaps you've wasted those decades behind you, maybe you are more like John Mark than Peter. Peter. 
Maybe you are a bit of a washout like he was. Maybe you tend to take the easy route in your life. Maybe you have failed to keep your promises. Friend, I want you to know the Lord Jesus is not done with you. The Lord was not done with John Mark. Jesus loves John Mark's. Jesus loves him a washout. If you have made a history of screwing up, of doing all the wrong things, of never doing any of the right things, I need you to know something. Jesus loves that about you. Your screwing up might be his favorite thing about you. It doesn't keep him from you. No, screw-ups are the only people he works with. Turn to Jesus, friend. And remember what Jesus said in John 6, 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's what John Mark did. There was grace in the Lord Jesus for him. And there is grace in the Lord Jesus for you. That same final letter of the Apostle Paul He wrote to Timothy and said, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. John Mark was restored to ministry. He was reconciled to Paul. Seasoned saints, please make note of this. The Apostle Paul did not take John back reluctantly. He called for him. I want him with me. He's useful to me for ministry. I want him plugged in to ministry. Oh, and plugged in, he became. (laughs) You see, some six or seven years after Paul wrote this in Colossians 4, John Mark, probably with Peter's help, he sat down and he wrote a letter himself. Under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, he wrote the gospel bearing his own name, the gospel of Mark. This one-time failure, this one-time coward, this one-time washout, John Mark turned to Jesus and found grace there. And he was taken in by selfless, hell, uh, hell, hope-filled, gospel-rich men who reconciled him to ministry and the Lord used him to write one of the four gospels. What remarkable kindness the Lord has shown. The enlarged heart takes in screw-ups and cowards and weak sauce and nobody's like John Mark because the enlarged, car, the enlarged heart remembers I used to be a John Mark and someone took me in and someone showed me that Jesus loves screw-ups. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to know This is the good news of Jesus Christ, that God loves the screw-up, that God sent His own Son, Jesus Christ, to do all of the things that you're supposed to do, 
and to take and, and, and bear the penalty of all the things that you weren't supposed to do and died on a cross. And God raised him from the dead three days later. And that every screw-up who turns to him in faith is forgiven of their sin, joined to Jesus Christ, and added to the family of God, that great, glorious company of screw-ups saved by grace. Turn from your sin today. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Sadly, not all will turn to Jesus. Such was the case of the other name we saved, the case of a man named Demas. There's grace in Christian ministry, and there's also great heartbreak. Demas was with Paul in Rome in, Col- in Colossians 4, but not for long. We read in that same last letter of the Apostle Paul these tragic words. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cornerstone, everyone finishes. Not everyone finishes well. Demas did not finish well. He fell in love with this present world and abandoned the faith. Anyone who has spent time in ministry has known a Demas or two. They start off well. They use all the language you expect. They might even seem to be producing the fruits of the Spirit in their life. But over time, a love of the world creeps into their heart. And unchecked, it suffocates their love of Jesus. And they turn from God. And it hurts. Demas is hurt. Demas is hurt more than persecution could ever hurt. And Paul knew heartbreak in gospel ministry. Many of you know that heartbreak too. Many of you have had to part ways with people that you loved because of unrepentant sin. And it leaves marks. And it leaves scars. Some of those scars you'll carry with you to glory. This is why some people keep their hearts small. This is why some people just keep to themselves. They're afraid of the pain that comes with letting people in. But we are alive today simply because Jesus didn't keep to himself. He wrapped himself in humanity. The Bible says that Jesus was acquainted with grief. He was a man of sorrows. He knows what it's like to be abandoned by those you love. Jesus knows what it's like to pour yourself into a relationship and have your heart ripped out. And he will be with you when that happens. There's no cloudless skies 
on this side of glory. There will always be Demases in our church. But understand that the sun is still shining on cloudy days. Stay the course. Keep pressing on in ordinary ministry. And that brings us to our final point, the last several verses of this letter, that gospel ministry is gloriously ordinary. This is verse 15 to 18. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that they also read, that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Paul opened the letter of Colossians with these great massive statements about the glory of Jesus and the preeminence of Jesus over all things. He wrote, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things. And in Jesus, all things hold together that in everything Jesus might be preeminent. And he ends the letter in very much the same way if you have eyes to see it. Three things in this, these closing verses that promote the excellencies of Christ. The first gloriously ordinary means of making much of Jesus that we see in these verses is a simple one. Going to church. Notice that Paul assumes the people will be gathering. Verse 15, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. He's writing this from a thousand miles away. He hasn't been there in many years, and he knows that they're all still meeting. Isn't that interesting? Also, by the way, this is the second woman we've mentioned in this passage who, is, who we see hosting a church in her home. Women's ministry game was strong back then. Second thing we see, the gloriously ordinary means of making much of Jesus in this passage that we see is reading and studying Scripture in the local church. You see this in verse 16. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from the Laodiceans. Not only does Paul assume that they would gather, he assumes that one of the things that they would do when they gather is read the Bible. The letter of the Laodiceans has either been lost to us or it's a reference to the, to, to the book of, of Ephesians. We, either way, the point is clear Gathering in the church to hear the scripture is not the invention of a later time. This is what Christians have been doing since the very beginning. The third gloriously ordinary way of making much of Jesus that we see in this passage, admonish one another. You see this in verse 17, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Admonish your brother Archibus to do his job. What job is that? Are we untold? This is the only place that this man appears in the Bible. 
All we know that Paul is that Paul is telling the Colossian church, tell your brother to fulfill the ministry he has received in the Lord. Admonish your brother. We have all received a ministry from the Lord. This includes many things, to be sure. But at the very least, it is to gather in the local church to make much of Jesus, to take heed to God's word in the local church to make much of Jesus, and to encourage others in the local church to make much of Jesus. These are the ordinary means that God has willed his people to make much of his son until he comes or until he takes us home. This is what we do. This is why we exist, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ until Christ is all. Give yourselves to these things. Fulfill your ministry. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we confess our small hearts to you this morning. We've isolated ourselves. We've sought to protect ourselves. We've been living in fear. Will you forgive us? Lord, forgive us for being dismissive of others. Forgive us of judgmentalism. Forgive us for forgetting the graces that we've received from the Lord. Forgive us for forgetting that there's grace for screw-ups. Enlarge our hearts, O Lord, to your Son, to your people. Will you enable us in the coming weeks to open our hearts and to open our homes Fill us with your spirit. Give us the heart of Jesus. And may we not wait for them to come to us. May we be like Jesus who had compassion, who loved the marginalized, who pursued them, who pursued us. Father, protect us from being like Demas, falling in love with this present world. We know that this present world is passing away So give us hearts that long for more, that long for the eternal. Give us willing hearts to serve the purposes of the Lord. And may we fulfill the ministry we have received from the Lord. Amen. Your assurance of pardon this morning comes from Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. And you, when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God has made alive with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Grace and peace.